Hello, my name's David Thompson from the Fraser Valley in British Columbia. For those of you that have never heard any of my messages, I just briefly want to give you an introduction about what I'm going to be sharing here. There's a scripture verse given to the early church by the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Peter in 2 Peter chapter 4 that says, If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. And that is what I am about to do here in this message, is to seek to speak as the oracles of God, to allow the Spirit of God to rise up out of me and give the message that God is wanting to say say to you as an individual who in the foreknowledge of God has come across this message, what he is wanting to say to the corporate body of Christ at this particular time, this time just before major events will bring in the kingdom of God. What he's wanting to say to whoever else to facilitate that, I cast lots before God where there's an equal possibility for any particular chapter to be brought forth. And then I spent a half an hour meditating on that chapter and immediately after, after that half hour, which includes some brief making of notes, I speak the message as I am just about now to do. So there's hardly any preparation here. Now, I don't give this message every day of the week, but I do this meditation with notes pretty well every day of the week. There's the rare exception, usually on Sunday. I don't do it. I want to share, therefore, from a particular chapter that I will read. And amazingly, the other chapters that I received this week thus far, and actually going back to last Saturday, which is the time from the last message I gave, which was on before last Saturday, I do want to touch on the various other passages because God has a way in his omniscient power through the casting of lots, as we have faith in his omniscience, in his omnipotence, to bring forth a message. Even in sharing this message, I seek to allow the Spirit of God to rise up out of me and to bring forth what he is wanting to say from these passages. But I do the casting of lots to facilitate God speaking to you personally as a person and to everyone else that would be listening to this message. Of course, in seeking to speak as the oracles of God, that means being in a conscious state of worship while I am speaking, where I seek to be attuned to hearing what the Spirit is saying and wanting to speak through me. And I also allow the Spirit of God to rise up through me and carry me beyond anything of my own mind and understanding to bring forth out of the presence of God's Spirit 
while we'll touch the very inner being. Christ said, the words that I speak unto you are spirit and life. And also the words that I will speak now, I will speak by the Holy Spirit. And I pray right now that God by his spirit will guide me into all truth and grant me revelation even as I am speaking because I don't even know how to share from these passages. It is in helplessness that there is dependency on God out of worship that allows the working of his spirit to speak through us, which is the spirit of prophecy. And of course, this is mentioned in Revelations chapter 19, where the Lord gives an exhortation, actually the angel does, to the apostle John as he fell, falls prostrate before the angel. The angel says to him, See thou do it not, for I am thy fellow servant and of thy brethren the prophets. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. It is out of worshiping God from the depths of our being, out of the genuine fear of God that contains humility and truth, that is released the spirit of true worship and the presence of God to infill us so that we come forth either in words or in songs that are totally created and beyond ourselves. And many times while I am speaking, God does show me things that I've never seen before that are very profound at the very moment that I'm speaking as well. So I am praying that God will guide me and all those that are hearing this message into the truth that will bring them into abundance of life and liberty from those things that would veil them from the truth that would set them free. I want to now go to the various passages that I received this week and make the theme passage that I will read from Philippians chapter 1. So, first of all, I will read Philippians chapter 1. Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi, with the bishops and deacons, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making request with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. And this I pray that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment that ye may approve the things that are excellent, that ye may be sincere and without rebuke until the day, or offense until the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ unto the glory and praise of God. 
But I would ye should understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel. So that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all other places. And many of the brethren in the Lord waxing confident by my bonds are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ even of envy and strife, and some also of goodwill. The one preach Christ of contention, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my bonds. The other of love, knowing that I am set for the defense of the gospel. What then? Notwithstanding, every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice, for I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor. Yet what I shall choose I wot not, for I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. And having this confidence... I know that I shall abide and continue with you all for your furtherance and joy of faith, that your rejoicing may be more abundant in Christ Jesus for me by my coming to you again. Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs that ye stand fast in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel, and in nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake having the same conflict which ye saw in me, and now here to be in me. I did not receive Philippians chapter 1, which I've made the theme today. I received that on Wednesday, yesterday. Today on Thursday, I received Psalm 18. And I want to bring out a theme that is coming through the various chapters from this last Saturday up until today on Thursday, excluding Sunday. One thing that Paul brings out in Philippians chapter 1 is his deliverance from his adversaries. He's in a situation in which he is in prison and experiencing persecution, 
where he doesn't even have the ability, as he used to, to go out and spread the gospel. And he's aware, as mentioned in this passage, that there are even those that are preaching the gospel that are against him, not because of any sin in his life, but because of how godly he is living. And so their motives are wrong, but he doesn't dwell on that. Rather, he has a forgiving heart even towards such in the sense that he says that he's not focusing on that, but rejoicing in the fact that they're still preaching the gospel, that his desire is not what people think of him. His desire is that God is glorified because he knows that God will take care of any misinformation that would misrepresent the glory of God in him in the proclamation of the gospel by the way he lives and by his gifting and his preaching of the gospel. That is the basic context of Philippians chapter 1. But there is a powerful secret that is brought out in Philippians chapter 1. And that secret is what I will make the theme verse of this chapter. Philippians chapter 1 has a verse that says this towards the beginning. And so I will just bring out this verse here. It's in verse 9. He says, And this I pray, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and in all judgment. How does love relate to knowledge and judgment? How does it abound in such a way that it affects the enlargement of knowledge and judgment. And the reason knowledge and judgment is important is mentioned in verse 10, where it says that ye may approve the things that are excellent, and that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ, unto the glory and praise of God. When there's genuine love, it abounds in knowledge and judgment, which results in being able to know what is excellent and approve that as opposed to what is not. And it also results in not being an offense to others or allowing oneself to be offended by others or affected by others, such as the one's that had impure motives in preaching the gospel and spoke against Paul the Apostles. Now, this particular theme is also reflected in every chapter that I received this week. Basically, the context in all the chapters that I received this week is opposition and persecution and deliverance from them, those persecutions. So we want to look at the secret of overcoming offense, the secret of overcoming all forms 
of opposition and persecution, no matter how severe and unjust, whether one is facing death itself and torture and threats or just merely offense from a brother or sister that has misjudged you. The secret to overcoming all of those things lies in our relationship of love with God that results in abounding love that overcomes towards all opposition, whether it's our brothers and sisters that are misjudging us or enemies that are about to torture us to death. If so be that our calling is that to inherit a more glorious resurrection, as is mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and also in Hebrews chapter 11, that there were those that could have received deliverance, but chose to be tortured to death, that they might have a more powerful and glorious resurrection state of being forever. What I want to share here now, before expounding what this secret is in verse 9 about knowledge and judgment in relation to love, I want to go to the other various passages to show the theme that is generally coming out in those passages by the power of God through the sovereign casting of lots, which I could only have work if I did it with total reverence and a pure heart and life before God. Otherwise, it wouldn't work. Okay. My faith is in the sovereign power of God, whose omniscience is attached to every particle of existence in the Father beyond the time and space realm to see the end from the beginning. And so this works. Now, I will go back to the very first passage that I received, which was on Saturday. It was Galatians 5. Now, this passage of scripture, I'm not going to go into very much, except to emphasize the verse that has significance in this passage, which is Galatians 5, verses 5 to 7, where we read, For we through the Spirit wait for the hope of righteousness by faith, for in Jesus Christ neither circumcision availeth anything, nor on circumcision, but faith which worketh by love. Ye did run well. Who did hinder you that ye should not obey the truth? In this particular passage, there was divisions. The divisions are pointed out to be being caused because they lost their love relationship with God, which works by faith, which is, involves faith working by love, pardon me. They got deceived into a focus on their own self-sufficiency so that they trusted in themselves and their own righteousness. Whatever we trust in becomes our focus. 
It becomes where we put our worth, whether we are aware of it intellectually in the conscious or not, in the heart, there is a state of deception, of self-worship, because whatever we trust in is where we're putting our worth and our glory. And so we're in a state of self-righteousness, of self-worship, though intellectually we could totally believe the opposite. The evidence that we are in such a state is that it allows a state of pride that causes division. It allows a state of pride that causes deception to justify fulfillments of the natural realm and to veil them with religious performance and deceive oneself to believe that somehow by that religious performance, God will accept us despite what is in our heart that is totally self-serving in motivation, whether it be seeking glory from people by pious religious performance or whether it be the secrets in our heart of lust that we feed on, thinking that somehow we will be accepted. Yes, we can, we can sear our conscience through deceptions of belief to justify a, a satisfaction with temporal fulfillments that are used as bait to manipulate our life by greater powers in a direction that eventually would lead to hell. I am only touching on these passages now to point out the theme of what God is seeking to say to the body of Christ and to you as an individual. Then, on Monday, I received Psalm 23. Now, Psalm 23 is a well-known psalm, and the context, again, is about deliverance. I could say it probably from memory. It's about, it says, Yea, though I want, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I shall not desire anything if I know the Lord is my shepherd. Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside still waters. He restoreth my soul for his name's sake. He leadeth, me, no, he leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of, the, of death, I shall fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. It's emphasized. Now, I haven't turned to read this psalm. I'm just reading parts of it here. I, and I haven't memorized Psalm 23, so maybe this is a good time for me to go and turn to Psalm 23 and just finish that off a little more accurately here in Psalm 23, just six verses 
I never did ever remember ever, ever memorize it to my knowledge. So he says, Thou repairest the table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. There is a secret in this psalm to being delivered from the circumstances of oppression and of death and of fear. And the secret is in knowing how to enter into a relationship of love with God in the midst of those trials. Now we go. And for some reason, I chose two psalms that day. Maybe I wasn't satisfied with just doing one psalm. I also chose Psalm 52 that day. And I have commentary in all of these psalms. I could read the commentary. In fact, it's probably good that I do that. But first, I'll just go through touching them. In Psalm 52, I, I will read some of the commentary. There are those that will lie all over and over when it totally hurts and destroys other people's lives just so they can be rich and that is where their trust is. It's in their riches. In the end, God will destroy such people with everlasting destruction and violently take their life in this world. As believers, our prosperity is in the house of God where God's dwelling is. And we're always trusting in God's mercy forever and ever. We also wait on the name of God because we know his name is filled with goodness before all those who are his holy ones or his saints. That's what's in this psalm. By holding back our own presumptuous self-initiations to spend time dwelling on focusing on God brings an intertwining of identity in God and a gathering of his presence and the power of his spirit in us to show forth his glory. So again, Psalm 52, the same day, is the context of Doeg the Edomite that was trying to give information to King Saul in order to find King David and kill him. And he comes to where the priest is and discovers that King David was there and had eaten of the showbread and King David gives this psalm. So here, King David again is describing his deliverance from someone who had no concern about anything but to be accepted highly by King Saul so that he'd have a lot of wealth. That was his motive to expose King David. But the context again is a context of persecution and opposition, and the secret is found in this psalm that will bring great deliverance. And then we go from there to the next day, Tuesday, where I receive Proverbs chapter 1. And in Proverbs chapter 1, I'm just going to point out what I saw in there that God was speaking particularly about, that was the theme that God wanted to bring out in that chapter. That is found in Proverbs 1.7, which says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. 
but fools despise wisdom and instruction. That's verse 7. There's other verses related to this verse in the psalm that I will bring out now. The next one is in verse 29. For that they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of God. Notice that knowledge is hated out of failing to fear God. Remember in Philippians 1, we talked about knowledge, how it's related to love, and we haven't brought that out yet. Proverbs, the next verse, says, They would none of my counsel, they despised all my reproof. Then 31, therefore shall they eat the fruit of their own way and be filled with their own devices. The commentary I made here in Proverbs 1, particularly in regards to the fear of the Lord being the beginning of knowledge and fools despising wisdom and instruction. The fact that people that do not fear God means that they hate knowledge. Here's the commentary I made. The fear of the Lord is the choice to recognize God for who God really is in ultimate power and goodness, which can only be contained in his holiness. out of which springs his power to provide mercy. Without this, there is no consistent and immovable foundation for consequence. And without such a foundation, there can be no constructive application of knowledge, which is wisdom. Now, I can go and give you many examples of this. The more people lose the fear of God and are not aware that they are accountable to what is ultimately trustworthy because of the integrity of God's love. What is the integrity of his love? It is the holiness of God. It is God as a blazing fire of judgment against the slightest word, thought, or deed that would be contrary to his love. Love being that quality that always chooses the lastest tying good, the lastest, the, the, the most lasting highest good over any more immediate choice. A free choice. God is always choosing the highest lasting good. He, as such, must judge what would be a compromise that would be less than that and as such as a blazing fire of judgment against the slightest that is contrary. His love is a blazing fire of judgment. The integrity of his love, which is his holiness, the defensive aspect of his love. And when people refuse to acknowledge the holiness of God, which contains the goodness of God, because you see, if God did not have such integrity of love to require judgment, he could not contain unlimited power in life without being corrupted by it or allowing it to be corrupted so that it dissipated. He himself would become corrupt and the universe would self-destruct. It is because of God's integrity to be a blazing fire of judgment against the slightest that is contrary unto love, which is that quality that is totally constructive, to choose the highest lasting good has no destructibility in it. It is that quality of God's being 
when it is accepted and seen for the goodness that is in it, that brings forth an integrity in one to be totally honest, that brings one to a place of total humility before God. Now, there's more to it than just some intellectual assent. Choosing the fear of God. The fear of God is a choice that involves the deep turning of the heart to recognize God as totally trustworthy because of this integrity of love that can contain unlimited life and unlimited power without abusing it. In other words, as such, he contains unlimited life and unlimited power in a way that is onto ultimate, ever-expanding goodness that is ever-creative, ever-enlarging, and greater and greater goodness. And if he did not have that integrity, the opposite would be the case. There would be, he would be partaking of evil, and there would be wrong and destructiveness, and the universe would destruct and God himself would not be everlasting. Therein, when we totally are receptive and open to God's holiness, which we can easily rebel against because it requires judgment, because it's because of the holiness of God that there's all the suffering in the world. But people look at the suffering and they say, "What? Well, why would God allow this? The moment they have doubt and they buy into that doubt, they're not Perceiving God is ultimately trustworthy. They're not recognizing that he requires judgment and that his judgment is just and the consequences are because of rebelling against that judgment. Even the second law of thermodynamics is defined as this. That which is left on its own will always go in the direction of greater and greater disorder. And when we are cut off from the very source of love and life that holds unlimited power and life and goodness. What is left but corruption that goes in the direction of greater and greater destructibleness onto total torment, onto total destruction. And this song People chose to not fear God. Choosing to fear God involves acknowledge him, acknowledging and receiving whom he is above everything else, including our own life. It is the acknowledgement that God is our life source, and that without him we deserve hell and judgment. The fear of the Lord is defined in another verse in Proverbs, I think it might be 1427. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life to depart from the snares of death. It is, first of all, on the plus side, the acknowledging of God as our ultimate life source. It is the acknowledgement that that life source also requires judgment, and therefore the negative part is to depart from the snares of death. 
And if the fear of God was only receiving his holiness, that would be fine. But the other aspect, which is the positive, is that because God is holy and pure, because his love has absolute integrity, there is a foundation for God to assure destiny to you as a creature and to his creation to have the power to provide mercy, to have such a more high moral capacity of love without corruption that he could actually take judgment upon himself for you, suffer more than you a mere creature, condescend more than you a mere creature in humility, and absorb that judgment upon himself without breaking his union with God, which he was totally trusting the Father, even when he said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He did not lose trust in God because he is God. I don't have time to go into all explaining all of this in every message. A book will come out in great depth on all of these things that I'm writing. But I just want to point out here that when we choose the fear of God, we are choosing to acknowledge that God is so pure in his love that he can also provide mercy and that that forgiveness lies only in God. And that was the message that was preached from the beginning, that there is only one God and that he has provided a way of forgiveness and that ultimately that lies only in God because only God has such a pure love that he could become a perfect atoning sacrifice because he only can live a perfect sinless life in order to be able to be a substitute that totally represents our soul and spirit and not just our body. Animals can represent the body as they did in the Old Testament, cleansing the physical realm, allowing his presence to dwell with us so that we know him and experience fellowship with him. But ultimately, the forgiveness is in God and was fully manifested in Jesus Christ, who is the full expression of God into time and space. And God took judgment upon himself in Jesus Christ and conquered death. I can't go into it here, or I'll focus, I'll spend too much time and get off the theme. Those that refuse to acknowledge God in the purity of his love and holiness and in the greatness, they will never see the greatness of his mercy towards them. They will never acknowledge the greatness of his mercy towards them because what they do is they become offended at the consequences of God's holiness and suffering in their own life and in the lives of those around them. And they develop a perception of God where he's like an enigma. He's distant to them, like he became to Cain. So they see God as only demanding out of his holiness. They don't see the goodness of God. And as a result, they form self-delusional, idolatrous perceptions of God that will allow them to justify a life that is in fact in total rebellion and independence from who God really is, either by seeing God as demanding and yet not good, or by seeing God as forgiving everything and having no integrity in his love. And so they choose to not fear God 
and they become busy with their lives and they don't seek God. They don't spend time developing a relationship of love with God. Now we will go on to the fact that I received Philippians 1 on Wednesday, which I've already shared. And we'll skip to what I received today, which is Psalms chapter 18. Psalms chapter 18. So I'm just going to go to Psalms chapter 18 here. And we'll look at that. Psalms 18. And I just want to bring out the theme that is in Psalms 18. It is a 50 verses in this psalm. And again, the same theme is coming up. King David is describing here his deliverance from King Saul. In fact, it says at the beginning, it says to the chief musician, a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who spake unto the Lord the words of this song in the day the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. And he said, I love thee, O Lord, my strength. And he goes on. And I'll just point out the things that are very enlightening in this chapter that show the secret of his deliverance from his enemies. Briefly, I say in verses 1 to 16, I sum it up like this, saying, Acknowledging and confessing God is the source of our strength and deliverance, and calling upon him from the depths of our being in the time of trouble brings deliverance. Brings deliverance. Verses 17 to 27, God's deliverance is towards those he delights in, which are those that are upright before God and keep his ways. We can't keep the ways of God if we don't choose the fear of God. Because those ways are the, it is only out of the fear of God that we are brought to a place of humility. And so when we keep his ways, we, we have acknowledgement of his great mercy towards us and towards others. And we have great humility before him. And God's saying, that he delights in those that have such a relationship with him of great uprightness and great humility. And that those are the ones that he delivers, the ones that are upright before him, that have humility. That's what's basically said in verses 17 to 27. And then there's a really good verse in verse 28. This is not only how far I went into the psalm. And in verse 28, and I may as well read this verse. We'll just go to verse 28. It says, For thou wilt light my candle, the Lord God will enlighten my darkness. In the time of darkness and oppression, God causes the soul of those who are such, as I just described, in a relationship with God out of the fear of God where there's uprightness, where there's humility and honesty, where there's love, a love, an intimate love relationship, he causes the soul of such to light up like a candle when they experience the oppression of darkness. There are some people that experience 
great oppression in their lives. The secret to overcoming oppression is in learning to let God light the candle, light our soul with the light of his presence like a candle. There's an old hymn that goes like this. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth and followed thee. And I'll give you the tune to it. It goes like this. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke. The dungeon flamed with light, my chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went Forth and follow thee. The secret to coming to the place where the Lord can light the candle of our soul in the midst of dire circumstances, and in this case, King David describes very oppressive dire circumstances, his enemies surrounding him. It says here, He delivered me from my strong enemy and from them which hated me, for they were too strong for me. They prevented me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my stay. He brought me forth also into a large place. He delivered me because he delighted in me. And then he describes the reason God delights in him is because the Lord's rewarding him according to his righteousness, according to the cleanness of his hands. Because I've kept the ways of the Lord, I haven't wickedly departed from my God in verse 21. For all his judgments were before me and I did not put away his statues from me. You see, if we really fear God, we don't withdraw from the word of God. We don't withdraw from who God is and perceive him as some enigma and begin to develop an idolatrous perception of God to justify our own independence from God. I was also upright before him. I kept myself from mine iniquity. Therefore the Lord hath recompensed me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in his eyesight. And then he says this, which is another evidence that is so important out of the fear of God. When we really see, when we really come to fear God, we recognize the greatness of his mercy to us personally. And so we can show great mercy to even those that offend us. And King David says this, with the merciful, thou wilt show thyself merciful. And with an upright man, thou wilt show thyself upright. With the pure thou wilt show thyself pure, and with the forward thou wilt show thyself forward. For thou wilt save the afflicted people, but will bring down high looks. 
Those that are afflicted are those that are often the righteous. It says, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivereth them, delivereth them out of them all. The righteous know affliction in their prayers of humbling themselves, of circumcising their heart out of the awareness of the greatness of God's mercy and goodness that comes out of the awareness of the greatness of his holiness and how awesome and wonderful it is. I want to say this about the holiness of God. It is out of the holiness of God that comes wholeness and that will bring wholeness in your soul. When we get really real before God and we quit having a counterfeit deception in our heart of our own ways before God, our own self-initiations, says in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 1, that when we go to the house of God, that we're to be more ready to hear than to give the sacrifice of fools. For God is in heaven and thou upon earth. Therefore, let thy words be few. When we're aware of who God is, there is such an awe that our own self-initiations cease. The tendency to be presumptuous and speak our own ways before God as if we're in the presence of some mere human being or mere human daddy. No, we're in the presence of the Father, the very originator of all things. The word Father has the understanding of originator and of seeing the end from the beginning. And God as the Father is that aspect of God in personage that governs beyond, governs beyond the time and space realm. He sees the end from the beginning. He is the originator. The Son is the full expression of the Father. Two, in the time and space realm, the word son means expression. In Hebrews 1.3, it says that Jesus Christ is the full expression of the Father. And so when we see the Father as he truly is, for Christ said, whoever has learned of the Father comes to me. When we see God as the Father in his holiness, and out of that, the greatness of his mercy to us, we are in that seeing the sun. And so those before Christ totally saw the sun in the Father and recognized the greatness of God's mercy to them and experienced being born again of the Spirit such as Nicodemus was told about before Christ died on the cross. Enoch had a deep intimate relationship with God. He was born again of the Spirit even before Christ died on the cross, because he had a revelation of the greatness of God and his mercy to him out of the fear of God. In this passage of scripture here, I want to now bring out a little more about how we enter into the place of being brought 
to this intimacy with God that allows his dwelling to be in us in such a way that in the midst of our enemies and of great oppression, the light breaks the darkness and conquers. And I want to point that out from our theme chapter, which is in Philippians 1 now. I want to go there first and point it out there. And the theme verse in Philippians 1. So I'm turning back now to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. Takes a minute to get there. And it was verse 9. And this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment. And remember the context here again is Paul is in prison and praying for his deliverance out of prison. And he's also even persecuted by some believers. What I want to point out. First of all, I want to read the commentary I made on this chapter. The norm is to experience fellowship in the gospel. As believers, that should be the norm. If we're walking in the light as he is in the light, we will have fellowship one with another. And Paul's prayer in verse 5 was, he was just thanking God for their fellowship in the gospel. And that it, and he was, and he go with a love that is abounding more and more in knowledge and all judgment. When love is the supreme motivating factor, there is not the skewing of self-seeking motives so that one can see through outward appearance to the heart. That is the secret. You see, when we really see the greatness of God's mercy to us and therein the greatness of his love to us personally, and that obviously issues out of choosing to recognize God and the reality of who he is, which is the integrity of his love that transcends in the mercy of his love to assure destiny through the power to provide forgiveness. When we really see God that way, there is such a love in our heart for God that is birthed and it's described in Galatians that I mentioned earlier as faith which works by love. Because when we really are born again, what's happened as we've seen the greatness of God's mercy and thus we've seen the greatness of his love, that there is no unrighteousness or corruptibility in his love, that he's totally trustworthy, that our spirit reaches out like an open hand. And that open hand represents a state of selfless trust Faith involves our spirit in a state of selfless trust that is transformed from a clenched fist into an open hand of surrender and trust to the mercy of God to forgive us, to the love of God to forgive us, so that we are in a state in our soul and spirit like an open hand to receive his spirit like another open hand coming against that open hand, forming two hands of prayer that represent also the seed of the divine nature, which is described in 1 John like this. It says, 
Whatsoever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. Yes, our faith is the new divine nature that involves our soul in a state of selfless trust that allows the indwelling of the Spirit of God with our soul and spirit in that state of selfless trust. And it is an ongoing thing, for it says in the word of God, as we've received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. So the way we receive Christ, I just described, we came to the place like the prodigal son where we realized we the only hope was to recognize what is ultimately real that can satisfy the inner depths of our soul, which could only be in what is ultimately trustworthy. And so we turn to the mercy of God which we perceive out of the holiness of God that requires judgment. And therein, the Spirit of God opens, comes to dwell in our spirit. But then we go on in an ongoing state of abiding like this as we receive Christ Jesus. So there's an ongoing of turning in our heart. Now, I was talking earlier about wholeness and how wholeness comes out of the holiness of God. Our being before we were converted was like a black hole in outer space, pulling everything into itself in a destructive way. Like a clenched fist. The only thing that could satisfy the void in our soul was to receive what is ultimately real that could satisfy that emptiness. And that was only created to be filled by God, for we were created to only find completeness in relationship with God. The more our identity is totally in God and not in these things around us, if it's in the things around us, it affects us. It affects the way we feel, we get oppressed because others are, we think others are rejecting us or they may literally be doing that or we're worried about the circumstances because our identity is not that strong in God. Yes, we've been born again and there's that seed there, but now there must be the unraveling that goes on in our life to the point that it doesn't matter anymore what people think about us where we are dead to the world and all that is in it, so that no matter what the world does to us, it's, we're like a dead person, it doesn't affect us, because our identity is not in the world anymore. It is now in God. Ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ and God from the world, and from everything in it, including even believers that misunderstand us and misjudge us. We should have such a love relationship with God recognizing the greatness of his love to us, that we can literally be filled with love towards those that misunderstand us and cover their faults and actually go to them and show love to them and, as it were, wash their feet, even though they're more in the wrong, in order to win them out of the deception that's in their lives because we're not seeing them the same way. Remember? In Philippians 1, what I mentioned, and I'll repeat that, when love is the supreme motivating factor, there is not the skewing of self-seeking motives. 
or self-alive motives that one can so that one can see through outward appearance to the heart and therefore have an accurate knowledge of right from wrong to make effective judgments towards others out of love. This way we are indeed able to approve what is excellent and will not bring wrong offense towards others or God. That, my friend, is the secret. The secret comes out of a love relationship with God, and that involves never allowing the thirst for reality and wholeness in God to be quenched by the loves of other things, whether it's being accepted by others or seeking glory from others or pleasures in this world the busyness of wanting our own career, whatever those things are, we must be willing to choose to buy of God the gold that is tried in the fire. To allow trials to shake those securities out of our lives, it will bring the dross to the surface in the trial. And then we'll see the ugliness that we didn't even know that was in us. And when we really see that, the enemy can lie to us and say, say, and say, see, that's who you are and oppress us. Or we can really believe in the goodness of God and his mercy, out of his mercy and ask God to cleanse us from the things we see that we now see are so abhorrent and he will cleanse us and he will forgive us and that dross will be gone and we will be transformed and discover that there's no longer a conflict in us with others because we become dead to the things in our self-life that have caused those conflicts. We begin to have a love that sees beyond one another's faults. I'll never forget the lady that told me how she just about divorced her husband. And she was making plans for that. And God challenged her to wash his feet with a towel. And she kept resisting, but she finally got the courage up to do it. And her husband said, no, no. And he broke down in tears. And she broke down in tears as she washed his feet and asked for forgiveness and they were reconciled, and the hardness was broken. And there are many of you that you have allowed the hardness of the cares of this life to cause a, a, an adultery away from God with loves to the world, and the church has done it corporately. And as a result, there's hardness in relationships and divisions and divorce and marriages and God is calling his people to come to a place where we see we enter such a fear of God and such a baptism in his love out of recognizing his goodness and love and mercy towards us that we can literally go and wash one another's feet and tear down the walls of denominationalism and of division and of unholiness in our lives. The more we love the holiness of God, the more we will love to live a holy life. And it's out of holiness that issues forth beauty. King David said, One thing have I desired of the Lord, and that will I seek after, to behold the beauty of the Lord 
and to inquire in his temple all the days of my life. And that was the secret that he knew how to enter into in the midst of his enemies, to bring down the dwelling of God in his heart, and to be conscious of dwelling corporately with God and his people in his temple. He did that in the midst of his enemies. You will find time and time again, he talks about delighting to dwell in the house of God while he's surrounded by his enemies. And that's the secret to overcoming. And the secret is in the fear of God that births faith that works by love. Now, the other part that I want to emphasize in this overcoming and deliverance is in Psalm 23. But before I go to that, I just want to bring out something that I observed this week that fits in to what we're talking about now. I happen to see on a news station, a particular video of a city council in the United States opening for prayer, and an atheist wanted to pray. Well, I was upset about it, and I recognized and I'm glad that many of the people walked out and refused to have to sit there. Oh, yeah, people will say, oh, that's unrighteous discrimination. Or what am I saying? They'll say you're discriminating. I say, that, no, everyone discriminates. The question is whether the discrimination is righteous or unrighteous, whether it is constructive unto life or in a destructive direction. And so it's not wrong for those people to walk out and discriminate. This guy is praying a prayer including praying to Satan, which he did in his prayer, praying to Mother Earth and thinking that all of these and other gods and thinking that all these gods are somehow in unity. I thought there is an example of someone that does not have the fear of God and that hates knowledge. Has no foundation of consequence, no morality, and I'm not going to go into it. But then I saw a pastor reacting to him. And he kind of said, this guy with the sick mind and the host on Fox News said, well, why are you calling him? Why are you saying he has a sick mind? You see, the guy was overreacting. It was not wrong for him to be angry and hateful at that. But there's this tendency in human nature to not show mercy. But King David was filled with mercy. And so he would not say words that were wrongly offensive. We totally reprove that, but we say things in a way that is out of genuine mercy that contains also the hate for what is evil, which is not wrong, but is overriding with love. Now, anyhow, I want to go back to Psalm 23, and this is what I want to say is the last part of things. Psalm 23 has a real secret to, and is giving the same answer in a different way. In Psalm 23, I want to point out 
what that secret is. So I'm just going to go to Psalm 23 here quickly um, and point that out on what where I see that particularly in Psalm 23. King David sees the Lord as his shepherd so that he has no desire for anything because he sees God as his wholeness and his ultimate beauty. That's why he could say the only thing he desired was the Lord because he saw him as the source of all beauty and of all provision. He doesn't have to be anxious about anything. God is his shepherd. He will provide for him. And he goes on and mentions how he leads me beside the still waters and restores his soul. Now, what I want to point out about this is that I see in this a wonderful thing about waiting on God. Because you see, one of the things that was brought out in Psalm 52, which I mentioned earlier, the secret that was brought out in deliverance there was the word waiting. And I want to just go to Psalm 52 and uh, try to just bring that out in Psalm 52. And so I'm just going down to the right place now. The righteous also shall see and fear and shall laugh at him. Lo, this man that made not God his strength, but trust in the abundance of riches. But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the mercy of God forever and ever. I will praise thee forever because thou hast done it. And then he says this, and I will wait on thy name for it is good before thy saints. This word wait is an amazing word. And I want to just give you an understanding of it. It has the understanding of curbing our own presumptions and self-initiations, ceasing our own agenda, and just collect, collecting ourselves in a focus onto God. In fact, it means to bind together in the sense of collecting. It has the understanding of a rope being twisted together. The Hebrew word is kava. Twisted together. And when we spend quality time being in awe of God, just waiting on him and collecting our focus on him, there's an identity that grows that's like the twisting of a rope that takes our identity out of the temporal things of this world so that we become dead onto this world into identity in God. And it involves the fear of God, being in awe of God, in the recognition of who God is, in his holiness, in his power and goodness, and in his mercy. So that faith works by law. And there's this collecting that takes place, and it's very interesting that the Hebrew word is collect or cord. And if you look at the original ancient symbolic language, you have the symbol of a sunset, which is a circle with a line through it. 
which has the understanding of something that repeats itself and circles around and around. And then you have the second letter being the picture of a man with his hands raised in praise and in awe. And it has the understanding of awe and of breath and of beauty. And this word weight, when you look it up in the dictionary of these original symbolic words, means to be held back by being bound. But it also has an understanding of the collection of water. And some of these words actually use that. A collection of water, a pool, or of horses collecting together, held back, waiting for something. There's a collection that happens in our being, like the collection of water, like the restoring of our soul beside the still waters. We begin to see the beauty of God. It says that thy doctrine shall distill as the dew. It is talking about God being the Holy Spirit, bringing revelation into our spirit because our spirit opens up to a state of receptivity to receive that revelation of God of his presence like the dew reflecting on the grass in a beautiful sunny day. And then we have right doctrine for he that know, for Christ said, whoever who knows the knows my doctrine he says he that has the truth and right doctrine are those that do my will not quoting it accurately but he does say that this is the secret that god is wanting to bring out to the body of christ he is calling us to learn to wait on him to enter into the fear of god so that we are baptized in the revelation of his love and of the glory of his beauty that comes out of who he is in his love and his holiness, in the integrity of his love and in the mercy of his love. That involves quality time seeking God as the body of Christ, starting your meetings on your faces in humility before God, forgetting about pre-service prayer meetings and making his house a house of prayer until we become more conscious of him in our midst than anyone else, including the pastor, and allowing out of that humility and awe, great infilling to fill us of love that breaks down all division, that causes a purity in our hearts, to truly want to wash one another's feet with the word of God so that we have true, pure words for one another to edify one another, so that our worship is pure, and he has a bride that is spotless before his coming and that knows the power of deliverance over all the enemy and can conquer their community, can conquer their city and their nation for the Lord. And that will happen when you churches begin to repent of your denominationalism and the leadership repents of control and allows the Spirit of God and Christ as the head to come and inhabit fully his body. Let us as the leadership facilitate Christ as the head over his body. I could continue to preach for some time, but I think as I look time right now, I have preached for an hour and 15 minutes and more. And so I will leave it at that. God bless you until another time. Thank you for listening to what the Holy Spirit is saying to the body of Christ at this time.